Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Thank you for joining us on this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum. Today, we're going to talk about Utah history, statehood with someone that understands that more than most people here in the state of Utah. Jedediah Rogers is the co-editor of Utah Historical Quarterly, and he's a senior state historian with Utah's Division of State History. Jedediah, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. You know, I, I learned about something called Thrive 125 that celebrates and commemorates Utah's history of statehood. Tell me more about Thrive 125. Well, January 4th, 2021 marks the anniversary when Utah became a state. So Thrive 125 really is uh, an attempt to think about what statehood means, what it means to us as a people, uh, who we are, where we've come from, what the diversity of our communities are. So it's made up of a number of different types of um, events and products that we want the public to be aware of. I love that idea, though. That's such an action word, thriving, right? That 125 years later, after achieving statehood, Utah is thriving. Yeah, you know, thriving really is it's, it's aspirational. We want stories to be told to highlight various groups, to celebrate our best selves, to, to consider how we want to spend the next 125 years. So it, thriving is, is a, reflects both a celebration of statehood as well as a commemoration, talking about the hard issues of where we have been in the past and where we're going in the present because, uh, you know, past is prologue and where we want to go, we have to understand what the past is has done and what maybe the what problems, what wrongs we may have committed so we can, so we can move forward. As a society. I, I really love that term. Um, the past is prologue because those of us who love to read or you pick up a book and the prologue is that kind of, here's the, here's the setup of the story I'm now going to tell you. And it leads in to the future of the story. So that is a beautiful thing for us to understand that what we are doing in the past by looking at it, uh, that that past really does influence the future of, of who we are and the decisions we make. I love that uh, example. Why do you as a historian think it's important for us to stop down, not just honor January 4th, but to take a look at Utah's statehood and its history? Well, statehood was clearly a seminal event in our history uh, and it's cast a long shadow in terms of establishing a system of governance and laws that continue to direct our lives. So I guess, you know, I'd say that statehood marks a political transition from territory to state, but it also reflects these major economic and social transformations that were occurring in Utah at the end of the 19th century. I'd also say that the anniversary really allows us time to reflect deeply about, again, who we are as a people, as a society, as a community. The governor's office refers to the anniversary as a celebration in the sense that it provides an opportunity to celebrate who we are as a people and to highlight our arts, our literary communities, 
commemoration, as I mentioned, is a really good way to think about it as, as well. My colleague um, who's up at USU, the historian Rebecca Anderson, has referred to authentic commemoration, which refers to thinking about the relationship between what we know about the past and our duties to the present moment. So this moment in time allows us to authentically commemorate by thinking about whether the values carried forward from statehood remain values to cultivate and care about today. And we achieved statehood, was it 1896? It was 1896. Okay, yes. so that was 125 years ago. And coming up in just a, a few minutes down the road in this interview, we're going to talk about some of the events that are scheduled for Thrive 125 because there are still things that we can all participate in for 2021, uh, 2021 as part of this celebration. But take us back in history to the path to statehood. So we, you know, we know we arrived in the 1840s, right? And then it took a bit. Tell us about that path. Was it difficult for us to go from being in a territory to a state? Uh, It was as difficult as it possibly could be. It took 50 years since the first statehood petition was was drafted in 1849. And it's important to recognize that, you know, when the Latter-day Saints or Mormon pioneers arrived in the Salt Lake Valley in 1847, they were not entering into unpeopled territory. This was the indigenous homelands of First Nations of a number of tribal communities and groups, thousands of individuals. And so where they settled actually had a direct impact, and that's the story of Utah history in the 19th and even into the 20th century is, uh, is, well, conflict in many ways between, you know, settlement and the peoples who were here previously. But the, the first official statehood petition was started in 1849. And the first three from 1849 into the 1860s were drafted entirely by Latter-day Saints, by the Mormons. And under the direction of Brigham Young, they sought political independence. Um, So territorial status really kept them under the thumb of the federal government. And it was just a continual bone of contention for, for 50 years. And, you know, and I, I made a mistake too, Jedediah, in that I said we arrived in the 1840s when the truth is, as you clarified, this land, you know, we had those who were from Mexico. We had native, uh, you know, tribes that lived here in this land before the pioneers arrived. Mm-hmm. So Utah's history does absolutely include uh, their experience as well. So you had Brigham Young guiding uh, that journey towards statehood with independence in mind, with the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints um, values and priorities at the top of that. So was Congress putting any barriers in place that impeded that ability for Utah to obtain statehood? They, they absolutely did. When it came to dealing with the Mormons, there was a, it was a big national conversation, really. The, many of your listeners may recall from their U.S. history classes that The first platform of the Republican Party in 1856 called for the eradication of what was known as the twin relics of barbarism, which included slavery, which obviously as a nation we we tackled, um, started to address with the Civil War, and then polygamy. Um, And the principal reason why Utahns had to wait so long for statehood was this issue of polygamy, the, the unique marriage practices among the Latter-day Saints. So the barriers to that, um, that the national government 
put in the way were several. You know, they split off chunks of the territorial borders. Um, they they whittled down the, the boundaries of Utah territory uh, several times. And one bill in the 1860s proposed cutting Utah into three parts to be distributed to other states. So getting rid of Utah territory altogether, that never that never happened. But it was on the table. And then, of course, national legislation that was passed to punish the LDS Church, but also to curtail the practice of plural marriage. So the Moral Anti-Bigamy Act of 1862 made bigamy against the law and territories. And it wasn't a law that was really enforced. But later laws in 1882, 1887, put the hammer down hard on the practice of polygamy. I was thinking about that, that there is sometimes a feeling of antagonism towards the federal government that exists in in the history of Utah. And so if I go back and I think about what you shared with the Republican platform saying, let's eradicate the Mormons, right? And then the the other uh, conflicts that occurred in the future years, uh, it makes sense that there is a, a sense of distrust towards the federal government. I don't want to editorialize, but that was interesting for me. Yeah, and it was the erad- eradication of polygamy specifically, but uh, Mormons always felt like they were under attack, um, and rightfully so. You know, I mean, James Buchanan in 1857 sent an army to quell a supposed rebellion in the territory, and actually at that time he replaced Brigham Young as territorial governor. So there were um, there were always always this tension uh, in the air in territorial Utah between religious authority and national politics in the in the American mainstream. One one major concern that that Americans had was was over Mormon political power in the territory. So in addition to polygamy, it's their political control. And what we see in the years between the first statehood petition in 1849 and the subsequent statehood attempts was was this concerted effort among national politicians to to largely um, you know curtail Mormon control over political affairs in the territory, not just to eradicate polygamy, but to minimize their their impact in um, in the political affairs of the territory. So that again, there's more of that conflict, right, in fiction between the goals of Brigham Young and those living here. And it was a growing population. During those years, weren't we seeing also that through immigration, uh, that the, this territory was becoming more and more populated and therein more and more of a political threat to those who felt uh, threatened by the influence of the Mormons politically? Yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, we oftentimes think of territorial Utah as being the Mormon pioneer story, and that's a narrative that has been dominant through through the 20th century and into the even into the 21st. But we need to really correct it in the sense that, again, we mentioned the first peoples who have always been here in the state, and but you know, especially after the construction of the railroad in in 1869, Utah saw just an influx of people flooding into the territory. And as a result, the political winds really were shifting, and this this lends itself by the 1890s to to allow um, Congress to actually see see fit to designate Utah as a as a state. You know, whereas in 1870, over 95 percent of the state was was LDS, 
by 1890, a full third of the state was composed of folks other than Mormons, you know, merchants, miners, rail workers, people from all types of denominations. So Utah's population was becoming more and more diverse. And in places by the 1880s and 1890s, cities like Ogden and Salt Lake City, um, the Latter-day Saints had lost their political foothold on city governance, or they had to share city governance with folks who were not of the Mormon faith. So that helped to break the statehood logjam. That's really interesting to think back in 1890, already there was one third of the population of the territory that were not directly a, a part of the Mormon pioneer. Uh, right. And, yeah, you know, yeah. actually, the, I'm sorry, but that, that third would increase into 1920 when it was a full 40 percent, uh, highest that it's been, you know, 40 percent of in, individuals are not of the Mormon faith. And that's significant. That just reflects the kind of... Um, multicultural and international demographic that Utah has. Mm, by 1920, 40%. So we start seeing more and more diverse ideas and thoughts influencing the politics. Tell me about uh, the Constitutional Convention. What was what was happening in, in the mid-1890s that led up to that final decision granting Utah a statehood? Well, there were a couple of things that that allowed statehood to to happen. One was, have to mention, the manifesto that was a declaration issued by the LDS church president, Wilford Woodruff, that basically the the, the Mormons, the, the official church, LDS church, was willing to capitulate on the issue of plural marriage. So this, this signaled a softening of um, conflict, I guess, over the, the question of plural marriage. And this, in addition to Utah's working behind the scenes to generate support from from national political leaders like James Blaine, who was Secretary of State, or um, or uh, commercial folks like the railroad baron Leland Stanford and others. Anyway, all of this helped to lead to a swing in the tide of public opinion by the, by the early 1890s. Um, I should also mention that a challenge to statehood, which was political organization in the territory along religious lines, that also began to change in the early 1890s. So for the first time in 1891, the national political parties appeared on the ballot box. And the earlier parties, which were organized around a religious affiliation, the People's Party and the Liberal Party, those had been disbanded. So by the time, by 1894, Congress then enacts the Enabling Act, which gave Utahns essentially the green light to organize a convention to draft a constitution. Mm, that's so interesting to me. For those who have just joined us, by the way, this is Jedediah Rogers. He's a co-editor of Utah Historical Quarterly, a journal that reflects the history of Utah. He's also a senior state historian with Utah's Division of State History. What benefits do, did would the people of Utah experience um, having statehood versus still living in a territory? Well, it allowed Utahns to have more representation in Congress. Now there were two senators and uh, also a member of the House of Representatives that uh, had votes in U.S. Congress. It allowed Utahns to choose their own political officials um, and enabled them to to be more stitched 
together tightly with the American political system um, and the American mainstream. I mean, once Utahns seen as outsiders, they were increasingly welcomed as loyal Americans. Um, but again, it's so statehood. Statehood was greeted with quite a bit of celebration. There were parades and uh, and you know celebrations on the streets uh, in the towns and the state. But you know we we need to recognize that statehood it was a political designation and its boundaries of statehood were imposed on over and through the homelands of indigenous peoples. So while it did grant us um, people here in Utah a number of uh, benefits, I guess you could say, it also signaled the final removal of indigenous peoples, Native Americans from from their homelands. And I'd say that for some, statehood marks a loss, whereas for it also signals a, a gain, certainly. But the place that we call Utah was built on Native American spaces, oftentimes without consent. So it's important to recognize that as we're talking about statehood. So as it's celebrated by one part of the population of the state of Utah, it was also representative of a great loss to those who this was their original homeland. Yeah, I think so. You know, I'm not uh, I'm not an indigenous person, but I, I really feel like um, statehood it has a bunch of conflicting meanings and uh, legacies. And that that's one of them. You know, this final loss of a, of a homeland that had been been theirs for for generations. So we need to be sensitive to that and also find ways to move forward that that recognizes those realities. Mm. Um, we've, we've been talking about Utah's history, its history to statehood, because we are celebrating 125 years or marking 125 years that Utah has had its history with its statehood designation with a, an event called Thrive 125. Thrive 125. In, on January 4th, there was a broadcast. Um, what was its goal, um, the Thrive 125 January 4th broadcast? Well, the, the broadcast was created, as is all of the Thrive 125 events, by the Department of Heritage and Arts, which is a department here in the state of Utah, and also by the governor's office. They designed the broadcast. Uh, I watched it on January 4th. It was terrific, very inspiring. But it highlights, again, who we are as a people, where we came from, the diversity of our communities by by showcasing our talented performance and literary artists around the state, um, frankly, at a time when individuals working in the arts and cultural communities have been hard hit with uh, the pandemic. So the broadcast served to employ some of them, but I think more importantly, it highlighted the richness of our arts and culture in the state. And it was uh, it was truly, you know, watching it does feel like a like a celebration that we're part of something bigger and larger than ourselves. Mm, and I'm glad that you mentioned that those who are performing, uh, the performing arts has have definitely hit uh, a, a tremendous obstacle with the pandemic that limited crowd sizes and shut down performance halls. It's been a very difficult time for them. So the Thrive 125 broadcast to see them all performing was really quite beautiful. There are other events. We have about five minutes left in our Utah Weekly Forum. There are other Thrive 125 events going on this year. Can you share some of those with us? 
Yeah, again, the Department of Heritage and Arts, in collaboration with Utah Humanities, organized these events to provide interesting discussions on various aspects of of our history. Um, Many of them highlight our landscape and and natural environment. Um, Some address more difficult aspects of Utah history and statehood. So there were a number of events that have been featured and that are still available on the Thrive 125 website for viewing, but these include uh, a play called Suffrage, which is a story about two plural wives in the 1880s um, living in a household that was then under siege um, by the federal government over the practice of plur- plural marriage. There's uh, There's been a an event on when Utah was Mexican territory, which focuses on, you know, the his, that history prior to 1847 and what it means to Utah today, uh, featuring Armando Solorzano and Sherman Fleek. There was another one on stories of refugees, stories of people who find sanctuary in Utah. Another one, a conversation with Native American storytellers. Um, one that uh, that I was able to listen to was about Utah's most famous land art, the spiral jetty on the Great Salt Lake, which is kind of an enlightening conversation about what that art piece means and then what the landscape and its significance is to to our state. Um, there'll be another one on highlighting the history of women in science and technology. And then on March 3rd, there's actually an event that um, that I'm involved with that features historians reflecting on the meanings of statehood. Why do we remember statehood? How has it shaped us as a people, and so on. So our events, I mean, these events have been successful. They've, many of them have had hundreds of people zooming in, hundreds more watching the event later via YouTube. And you can access the YouTube channel from thrive125.utah.gov. Uh, I, I spoke with Willie Palomo of Utah Humanities, who organized these events. He said that for him, a takeaway was that Utah is clearly ready and hungry for thoughtful and honest conversations about our past, especially when it comes to learning more about stories of historically marginalized peoples. And we'll have a chance to do that, to elevate. That's one of the beautiful things about the arts and whether it's literature, right, or whether it is performance art or whether it's storytelling or visual art is that it it gives voice to people's experiences and how beautiful that is that there's an ongoing series thrive 125 for us to hear those voices and to learn more of the stories and and become more inclusive of a state uh, as we move forward into the future jedediah rogers the co-editor of utah historical quarterly and a senior state historian with the utah division of state history what date is your event you mentioned that you're a part of yeah, it's on March 3rd at 7 p.m. And again, you can register for the event at thrive125.utah.gov. Great. And we can get a big picture of all the events at that same website, thrive125.utah.gov. Is that correct? That's right. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking time to help us uh, set the foundation of why we are commemorating 125 years of state history and how it can influence our future uh, together. Thank you for joining us on this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum. Thank you so much. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. 
they pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.